I don't know where I read it, but there's, there was a saying online that um, I'm, I'm, I really wish I lived in precedented times. Um, most of our lives is just like, oh, this is unprecedented. You know, we live through a pandemic. We live through political stuff. Like it's like, oh, it's unprecedented, unprecedented. And I think we're just very um, longing for precedented times. And so today, unfortunately, what I want to actually start with is talking by another like unprecedented history shaping event that, that we all are living for, are living through. Um, and that is that we are also, on top of everything else that we've been living through over the past couple of decades now, we are also living through the largest and biggest shift in the religious demographics of our nation's history. Um, that about 40 million, 40 million people who used to in some way attend or participate in the life of a local church no longer do. 40 million people that used to be a part of some kind of church and aren't anymore. This has led to about 80 churches per week that close their doors. And uh, so this is huge. This is what um, many researchers who begin to study this shift have referred to as the great de-churching. And that is pulled out of the idea that in the past 25 to 30 years, more people have left the church than all the people that came in through the first Great Awakening, the second Great Awakening, and the Billy Graham Crusades combined. All of those put together, and just what has happened in the past few decades has been a, a fundamental shift that's going to have implications on not just the so, like religious stuff, but the social fabric of cities and, and, and of our nation for generations to come. So this is what you're also living in. Congratulations. You're like, I'm still getting over COVID. Now I have to attend to this thing. So this great de-churching, this is just one of the things that it's, it's, I, it's weird because when you begin to read these stats, it feels weird, at least for me and for maybe some of you in the room here who are a part of Collective, because we really have been graced to be the exception to the rule that is decline right now. Um, just even looking in the room right now, so many new faces. We're so excited to have you with us today. As our church, we're continuing to, I just, we, but we are the exception to the rule. The water that we're swimming in is that of decline. And so when we ask ourselves, what does it mean to be followers of Jesus in our time, in our age, if we're not attending to the great de-churching, then we are, we're missing a, a, a fundamental dynamic of what's going on. So the first question is, that maybe comes to mind, is like, how did we get here? Why did all these people stop attending church? And although some of the reasons that you might come to mind, what was actually fascinating in reading through the research was it's actually far more diverse and varied than you might think. Most of us think it's probably like one big thing. It was a myriad of things. And so for the 40 million personal reasons, though, researchers have found a handful of these deep cultural ones that are consistent within the big story. So things like the fact that in the past 30 years, we're on the other side of the Cold War. And so a huge part of the Cold War American kind of stance was a, a unification of the identity of American with the identity of Christian. So it was during that period that in God we trust was added to our currency. It was in that time that one nation under God was added to the Pledge of Allegiance because to be American is to be Christian. That was the argument that was made. But Soviet fell, right? And what happened? It became a more okay thing for you to be an American without identifying as a Christian. This is one of the huge shifts in demographics. Another big one was um, through the kind of immersion and creation of what's been referred to as the religious right, which over the past 30 years kind of came into existence. And what it did was um, alienate moderate or leftist folk from religion because of its tiedness to the right. And then over the past decade, what has happened is the religious right has kind of begun to more and more drop the religious and just lean further and further right. Again, de-churching movement. You add to all this the busyness of our lives as the uh, economy has begun to move with a kind of a, a shrinking middle. More people have more leisure time than ever before for their weekends and more money to spend. So they're traveling and they got their kids in really expensive, you know, summer travel, soccer leagues or whatever. And then other people on the other side have to work more than ever. They've got double, triple jobs. And so their weekends are given to that. So the participation in a lo local church community becomes more and more impossible. Add this to all of it, the invention of the internet and that little thing in the back of your pocket, which is kind of, you know, propagated a kind of DIY spirituality, picked from this and this and this. And you can do that in your own individual self and time and how you want to do that. You don't need some kind of community. And how the internet just swarms to church scandals, giving you all the more reasons not to participate. So just a handful of little, you know, little, little shifts 
in our culture. But underneath all of this, what researchers found was why none of these uh, shifts could be weathered was what they called a crisis of discipleship. That underneath it all and through all of it, the primary thing was the, the, the American church over the past 30 years, over a generation, failed to make robust, resilient disciples of Jesus. And, and what happened is what we found then is over the past 30 years, people walking away from the church has been a walking away from the call to discipleship because that was never given to them. So there's a little bit of how we got here. Now the question is, where do we go from here? And so we're gonna get to one thing in a moment. But first, one thing that I've become so increasingly convicted about or, or, or like assured of is that as this becomes the dynamic within our country, as there are more de-churched people in our nation than unchurched, people who've never been to a church, never been a part of a church community, that the mission and witness of the local church over the next decades to come will look far more like a slower, more patient work of detangling and deconstructing broken views of Jesus and the church before we can reconstruct something of value and worth that's consistent with the person and work of Jesus in its place. So evangelism is gonna look far differently. And the primary way that we are going to do that work as the church is not just through telling, but through showing. Being an example of what the church is meant to look like, an example of what true discipleship looks like. How are we doing so far? Do you understand the trajectory here? So when we come now to 1 Thessalonians, we find a letter that is written in a completely different time and place than ours, but one that very helpfully speaks to some of these big questions that we're asking. Because part of the whole de-churching movement is, for most of us in the room, we have a pretty intrinsic sense of what the church shouldn't look like, of what pastors shouldn't be, or what a follower of Jesus as an individual shouldn't be. But most of us really feel like we're shooting in the, in the fog at what a church is actually meant to look like, at what it actually looks like to have a community committed to discipleship, about what to expect from leaders within the church, right? We just, we're like, what, what, what is the church? And we... We don't have a clear sense. We know what it's not, but not what it is. And so what's helpful about the letter of 1 Thessalonians is this is, by all counts, the earliest letter, the earliest writing that you have in your New Testament. So Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts, and all of them come right way before 1 Thessalonians. But that was not necessarily in chronology, not in dating. 1 Thessalonians was written somewhere around 50 A.D., a couple of years before you began to have the gospels start getting finished and put together or other letters like Romans that everybody loves or whatever put together. So this is the earliest little example. And so what it gives us is the earliest window into that thing called the early church, into the earliest movement of followers of Jesus. And in so doing provides a window and a model for this is what we're talking about when we talk about church. This is what Jesus and his people have been talking about. And so this becomes a helpful um, filter to deconstruct our expectations and assumptions about the church to build something of value in its place. Does this make sense of why this letter is so valuable and so helpful? And so what we're going to be doing over the next few weeks is moving verse by verse through this letter, the first half of it. We're going to come back to the second half later this summer, but the first half of it, allowing it to speak to some of these questions as we go back to the ancient model, the ancient example, bringing it to our modern questions so that we can discern and figure out a way to go forward. Does that make sense of what we're wanting to do, what we're hoping to set out and doing over the next few weeks? Hopefully we'll just do it and that'll make more sense too as we make our way through. So what I want to invite you to do is turn to 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, beginning in verse 1. And once you find your way there, would you join me in standing for the reading of the scriptures? And again, if you don't have um, a Bible with you today, it'll be on the slides behind me, but we've also got um, some little freebies at the back of the room that you can either borrow, um, or if you don't have a Bible of your own, take home with you as our gift. But 1 Thessalonians, this letter, chapter 1, verse 1, Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy to the church of the Thessalonians, in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace to you and peace. We always thank God for all of you, making mention of you constantly in our prayers. We recall in the presence of our God and Father your work produced by faith, your labor motivated by love, and your endurance inspired by hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. 
For we know, brothers and sisters, loved by God, that he has chosen you because our gospel didn't come to you in word only, but also in power, in the Holy Spirit, and with full assurance. You know how we lived among you for your benefit, and you yourselves became imitators of us and of the Lord when, in spite of severe persecution, you welcomed the message with joy from the Holy Spirit. As a result, you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and Achaia, this, the surrounding region. For the word of the Lord rang out, echoed from you, not only in Macedonia and Achaia, but in every place that your faith in God has gone out. Therefore, we don't need to say anything. For they themselves report what kind of reception we had from you, how you turned from, to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus who rescues us from the coming wrath. Jesus, thank you for, God, these spirit-inspired scriptures for the example and the model of the Thessalonian church in the midst of our confusion and even just the important, time that you've placed us within, calling us to be a church in the midst of an age of decline, that God, that you would hopefully through these next few weeks and even through today begin to shape our understanding of what it is you've called us to be and how to lean into it. In name we pray, amen. Go ahead and be seated. So I get there's a little bit of not disheartening, but weirdness when uh, I start the intro by talking about like, we don't have a model for what the church should look like. We need a model. First Thessalonians is gonna give us this model. And then it's just kind of like him just like doing like a gratitude thank you thing. Like what we would expect or maybe you would want were like explicit commands from Paul. Like where he just opens up and he's like, here's how to be the church. Step one, like do this. Step two, like we expect a kind of linear progression of that or a really like captivating um, like vision charter, you know, like a prospectus of the church. We're in the, in the city for the sake of doing this kind of work and this is who, and you're like, okay, that's, that's what we're supposed to be. Instead, it's literally, he begins a three chapter long, like just Thanksgiving prayer, just celebrating what the church is doing. And so that can kind of be disheartening if we're looking for a shaping vision of what the church is meant to be, but only in as much as we think that the only way that you can get guidance is through commands or through like vision statements. What Paul is tapping into here with Silvanus or Silas and Timothy is another avenue of guidance and teaching and instruction that... Um, that is common in leadership circles and stuff like that, but definitely very common for those of us that are parenting young kids. And that is guidance through gratitude. As the saying goes, uh, what you celebrate, you replicate. So the idea being that when uh, I'm trying to work with Arlo, he's like just now coming out of, I think we've got him potty trained. It's kind of where we're at, which is the most dangerous phase to be in. Uh, because you don't have the diaper on anymore, but you're kind of expecting he's gonna know and he doesn't always know. And so in this phase though, like the way that you go through potty training is not sitting down with like, this is, here's a display. Here's the, here's like, I've got this PowerPoint presentation that I'm gonna walk you through on like how to go to the bathroom, right? Or neither is it like a vision statement of like the benefits and like the goodness of not going to the, in, the to you know, in your diaper anymore, right? Well, what do you do is you do some guidance, some very simple, like here's what we're gonna do one step at a time. And then you freak out and celebrate over every little half-made step, right? This is the same that's true with walking. When you're trying to explain, you teach a kid to walk, it's not like you show a video of someone walking and you're like, do you see what they're doing? This is the, the movement you're doing. What do you do? You're just kind of, you're holding your hand. You're walking around them. And then when they make one step and fall over, what do you do? You celebrate. You're all excited. You're, you're, it's, it's guiding them through gratitude over what they've done. So with potty training, even when Arlo makes it to the bathroom but then pees his pants right there, what do you still do? Oh, you made it to the bathroom. You got here. Like, we're, that's a few steps away. Like, inside, you're like, are we seriously still here? But what do you, right? 
It's the same as true with you know, Emma right now, our seven-year-old. She's in ballet, and so how, how do you do that? What do you, it's not like she comes out and you're like, okay, so we saw your pirouette. We really need to work on you. Just, like, you're just missing a lot here. What do you do? She's seven. You guide her, motivating her to continue and keep trying by gratitude and celebration and, 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 and just being stoked. And, they, and what you find is that works just as benefit, if not more long-term benefits than a to-do list or a vision statement. And, and that's what Paul's trying to do right here. If you notice in verse seven, he says, as a result, he's talking about this church, you became an example, a model, a, a, a form to follow for all these other believers in the surrounding region. This is the one place in the New Testament that Paul refers to some church as an example. It's not to say, I mean, like, you ever read Corinthians? Like, they had plenty of stuff. They were a mess, right? But here in this one, Thessalonians, in this church, it's only a few months old. He goes, man, you guys are an example. You guys have tapped in to what's going on. What's he doing there? Is even in this young church that's just now getting its little baby steps in, he's focusing on what they've got and showing gratitude and thanksgiving for that so that they might be guided deeper into those things. So for those of us that are looking for, like, what are the marks of a model church? The way to find that in 1 Thessalonians is not by looking for Paul's commands. In the first half of um, 1 Thessalonians, zero. There are zero commands in the first half. He's got 24 in the back half, but zero in the first half. Because the primary way that he's doing guidance is through gratitude. By celebrating what he sees in the church, he's hoping to foster it into more, to deepen and grow. So again, as we're looking for, what are the marks of the model church? If we pay attention to what Paul's gratitude is after, what is he celebrating? What is he encouraging? Those are the things that, oh, that's, those are the marks of the model church. So that's what we're gonna do today, is just look at a handful of these little marks and models of what he's celebrating here. So first, we begin... Back at the beginning of verse one, where Paul starts by celebrating their shared identity as the church of the Thessalonians in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ to the church. Most of us, when you hear the word church, you think of a building or an event. Even on the way in today, we passed a church that had on their little, you know, the sign that they always try to do fun, like dad puns to get people to come to church. Never works. Uh, They had see you in church which I'm just driving in on the way going, look, what are they talking about? I'll see, you in the su- I'll see you on Sunday when we gather. I'll see you in the building. It is an idea of the church as a building. And yet Paul here explicitly understands the church to be a shared identity of a community. This is who you are. You are the church. As we regularly say here, the church is not a place where, but a people who. It's a people who. And so what does it mean to be the church? A little bit of geeking out for a moment here that is so good and so often forgotten is the word church. In uh, Greek, that Paul was writing in is this Greek word ekklesia, which means called out ones or set apart ones. But the common, this wasn't wasn't Paul or when Jesus used the word, them inventing a new word. They weren't going, what are we gonna call? Like all these followers of Jesus, we're, we're calling you out. You're the called out ones. What they're pulling from is um, common like language of the day. Ecclesia was used to refer to as the, the political assembly in a given city where those citizens who would gather together to make decisions for how the rule and reign of Rome and Caesar would be applied in their city. So if we're going to war, uh, policies, politics, whatever we're, we're going through, they would gather together, say, who, okay, we're here on behalf of making Rome's rule and reign be realized here in our city. And so we gather together to go, we're gonna make this decision, that decision. We're gonna take care of this over here. So ecclesia from the beginning, before it was used by the church, was a political term. A- akin to like today, the way that we would say it's a political party. Gathering together, supreme, it's a political assembly gathered together to do this work. And this would not have been news for the Thessalonians. This was part of their story, how they got birthed. If you go read in Acts chapter 17, the kind of like, you know, origin story of the, the church in Thessalonica, Paul and company come to the city and over, have the craziest week in all of church planting. They plant a church and leave within like seven days. And the main thing that comes against them from the city is these men who are turning the world upside down have now come here. Notice the the subversion, the almost revolutionary intent that they saw the church as bringing. And then they make it explicit. They're saying there's a king other than Caesar. 
So for the Thessalonians, they understood from the get-go to be followers of the risen King Jesus is a political statement. It is a political allegiance. And so when Paul says to the church of the Thessalonians, to the political assembly of the risen Lord Jesus, those who have been called to enact the rule and reign, not of Rome, but of the kingdom of God, not through politics and policies, but through your self-giving love, that is what he's, they're talking about. They understand it to be a political reality. So he's just reminding them of that truth. And so to the church is a shared political identity, but it's more than that. The church of the Thessalonians, he says, in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. In God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, one thing I've got to say on this historically, because this is the good, my favorite stuff to talk about, so you just have to sit through it and just humor me. But I hope it's helpful for some of you. Um, Notice what Paul does here when he says, in God the Father and in the Lord Jesus Christ, that he mentions that the, that the shared identity of the Father and, the, and Jesus the Son in the same breath, and he ascribes Jesus as the Lord, which is, you know, Paul, being Jewish, would have always been language referred to for, for God alone. Growing up as a monotheistic Jew, this is what he says, and here we have with the first writing, first words of the first letter of the New Testament is Paul taking for granted that Jesus and God share in this divine identity as God, the Father, and as his later says, the Son. Now, why this is really cool and why Ryan geeks out about this kind of stuff is because it's very common in our day and age for people to say that um, Jesus was a great teacher, Great guy, probably, got on the wrong side of the Romans, and so, you know, too bad for him. Um, but all of this stuff about Jesus being divine, Jesus being God, Jesus sharing in this kind of identity with the one that he called Father, this was stuff that was not, like, picked up until later creeds and councils after, church, after Christianity got co-opted by Rome. And so that was, like, invented. That was an, a thing that came up later. It's not how the early people that were really around Jesus, they thought of him. 50 A.D., you have Paul beginning his later taking for granted. He doesn't even explain it. There's no like in God the Father. and in the, Now what I mean by this is like that there's this, he just takes for granted. Oh yeah, you guys know what I'm talking about. That we as the people of, of the church are those who hold God and Jesus as Lord in a shared identity together. And so anybody who wants to say like Christians didn't think Jesus was divine until 300 or whatever, um, Paul at 50 AD seemed to. Deep reflection of that. So like I said, that's just Ryan's, Christology moment. Um, so you can bring that up at your next party. Um, so, okay, but what is this like? That's cool for history. What does this experientially mean? What is this uh, theologically? What is this, what's, what's the reality of what does it mean for the church to be the shared identity of the people who are in God and in Jesus? Now you could go to a bunch of different verses, but I, I honestly think that he, he does a lot of the legwork in what he says next. Grace to you and peace. This is more than just his like, you know, you know, little ending of his greeting. I think he's doing deep work. What does it mean for you to be the people who are in God the Father and Lord Jesus Christ? It is to be the people who have received the grace of God and who experience the peace of God. You are those who are in God and you have found the relationship with the Father through the Son that is given on the means of God's grace, which means that it's apart from your earning or merit. And so there is a freedom and a forgiveness over all that has brought you out beforehand. And even presently now, as you are in him, bumping around and trying to follow him, messing it up all the time, you are in that grace. And similarly, you are the people who have received peace and now mediate that peace out to the world, that deep shalom, that wholeness, that unity of all things. Another way that he, I think he says this is in verse four, that the church are brothers and sisters loved by God. Another way to say those who have received grace and peace, another way to say that the church are those who are in God and in the Lord Jesus is to say that they are brothers and sisters, a family made through the work of God, the love of Jesus. And so the relationship that we have to one another reflects not, well, it reflects this identity of being, being a family. And so the first mark, honestly, the first mark of a model church from verse one, chapter one, you'll see behind me, is a shared identity as the political family of God. Um, the, the dumb example that I think of this is like the Kennedys or like the Bush family. 
It's like a political, right? It's dumb, but it works kind of in the sense that you have all these people who are related to one another, they have deep connection with each other, and yet they're all at work doing political stuff. The church is meant to be that kind of, like that kind of portrait, a family that's been brought together, they're with each other in normal family stuff, and yet they're engaged in an outworking of the kingdom of God in their city and world. Not through policies, not through their votes, but through their embodied lives as they follow the way of Jesus. Now to bring this together back to the de-churching moment, what, is, what does this mean for us today? Just notice what are some of the primary elements in and around why the de-churching has come about? What has been, what's been defining for much of the American church over the past 30 years has been a co-opting by politics and over enmeshment with the world's way of doing politics and with political parties and also an overly individualized rather than family way of doing the life of the church. And so for us to be kind of the, uh, the image that comes to mind is like a lighthouse among the wreckage of de-churching will be the sort of community that shows what it looks like for the church to be a family that is united first and foremost by the grace and peace of God, seeking to extend the rule and reign of God. And so then when it comes to votes and politics, like we're going into an election year, so like of course we have to talk about this right now, is the ability to hold on to that deeper allegiance to the kingdom of God and to just set apart in the space of like personal wisdom and conscience how we lean into politics and votes. Not that they don't matter, but they are not our first calling. The first calling is a giving of ourselves, bringing about the rule and reign of God in this world, not through something we do in November, but something that we do every single day. It's through our lives, what we're doing in our neighborhoods, what we're doing in our workplaces, rather than just mailing something in or going to your local voting space. And so the first thing that Paul wants to get is the model church. What we need if we're trying to recapture what it looks like to be this is a shared identity as this family of God, brothers and sisters loved by God, enacting the kingdom within our city, within our place. He continues in verse two. We always thank God for all of you, making mention of you constantly in our prayers. We recall in the presence of our God and Father your work produced by faith, your labor motivated by love, and your endurance inspired by hope in the Lord Jesus. So his gratitude now extends outward and he looks at what your attention might have gone to, the faith, love, and hope of the church. But what's interesting here is that while we may think, most of us think of faith, love, and hope as internal feelings, faith is like something that I feel towards God. Love is something I feel towards someone else. Hope is something I feel towards the future. The main emphasis that he places is not necessarily just on faith, hope, and love, but on them being expressed actively within the community. It is not just their faith, it's the work that's been produced by that faith. It's not just their love, it's the labor that's been motivated by that love. It's not just their hope, but an endurance that's been inspired by it. So the other mark of the church is not simply that the church is a community of faith, love, and hope, but a church where those things are actively being expressed within the community. So when Paul says your work produced by faith, what he's talking about is anything done in trusting faith or allegiance to Jesus. Everything from like spiritual practices and your prayer discipline and reading scripture all the way over to caring for the poor within the city and meeting the needs of those around you. Your worship, your engagement, your life of obedience and holiness, that is all a work that's produced by faith. It's been interesting to find, specifically in Protestant evangelical kind of churches, a very hard emphasis on how we're saved by faith apart from works. We're faith alone, and like totally, that comes from Paul, who wrote 1 Thessalonians right here. But I just noticed the intent here that Paul would say, yes, totally, saved by faith apart from works of the law. And yet what he says here is that true faith, that saving faith, produces works. So the problem isn't with works. The problem is when we get those two in the wrong order. Works do not lead to faith. Faith is what produces work. I think it's so good. Next, he says, your labor motivated by love. Notice that he turns up the volume. He doesn't say work again. It's like your work, and then he uses the word labor. He's ratcheting up the costliness, the work, the sweat, the toil, the tears, and the blood that come out of love for the community. 
So what, what Paul has in mind here is the sort of work within a community where they're meeting one another's needs. They're, they're, they're figuring out how to walk with one another through life. That as they're going through this, I'm coming alongside them. As you're, here, you're meeting my needs and you're helping me with this. Very similar, this labor motivated by love to our care ministry within our, our church. Um, where we're, we're meeting one another's needs, where we're, we're grounding around one another, we're, we're celebrating one another. And so here, just, just if Paul's being grateful, um, are our care leads, I know some of them are out of town, we've got some stuff going on, but any care leads that are in the room, can you stand up? Regional care leads, where are you guys? Are none of them here today? Aaron's in kids ministry, but I'm not gonna... And Shannon's out of town, and then we also have the... Okay, so the next time they're here, I guess we'll have to do this later. So I was gonna do this, we were gonna celebrate them. If you guys are listening to the podcast... I was going to be grateful for you in front of everyone, but you missed out. Sorry. So here's what I was going to do after this, though, um, because the whole point is our care leads are meant to host and lean into um, those care needs as they develop within our region, but they're not the primary ones that are doing that. And so let me say this. Anyone in our community that you have contributed to a care need within our church over the past year, can you please stand up? None of you guys have? I know that's a lie. Thank you. Anyone who's contributed to a care need, you've, you've set up for a meal, you've shown up and cared for people. Okay, y'all, we see you right now. In the words of Paul, we thank God for your labor of love. How you guys have shown up for meals. Who's cl- Yes, give them that. Thank you. This, this, what you guys have experienced on a very regular basis in showing up for others within the community in little ways and big, you guys can sit down. <laughs> is precisely the kind of stuff that when Paul thinks about the church of Thessalonica, he's thinking about. Showing up in the little tangible ways that is labor. It is, you guys, those of you who have done it, you know. It's, having to go out of your way to show up for another is, is not an easy thing, but that's, what, that's, but that's what love looks like expressed at great cost to oneself. Part of this labor of love is also hospitality. And so for all of you that serve on, on uh, you know, kind of our rotating basis as a region to help pull off our gatherings, to host and, and welcome people and have a space where we're able to gather, we're so grateful for you. In, in special particular focus is those of you who serve regularly in our kids' ministry, who, who th- what is this? A labor of love. This is the kind of stuff that Paul's talking about. This is the kind of stuff that he's grateful for. This is the kind of stuff that Paul's like, that's the model church. The love isn't just a feeling that we say towards one another. Oh, I love my church. I love you. Paul's like, no, the sign of that love is those that have, you know, blood equity, sweat, tears. They've given themselves over to this community. That's the labor of love. That's the sort of thing that he celebrates. Their work of faith, their labor of love. And then next, he says, is their endurance or their steadfastness that's inspired by hope. And on this point, I'm not going to make anyone in our church stand up, but there are so many of you in this room who have displayed this very sort of thing. Think about an endurance, that ability to keep going when the energy has like left your body, when the pressures are pushing against you, and endurance is that tapping into something and keep going. And there are some of you that over the past year or years, what you have experienced could, has, could lay, rightfully so, lay you flat on your back, and no one would fault you for it. And yet you have shown up and you've gotten back up and you've continued and pressed in to Jesus in the midst of huge loss, in the midst of what, the, the greatest challenges that some of us could ever expect, losing a parent, losing a child, relationships, marriages, careers falling apart, and you keep showing up, enduring, not just in optimism, but hope in the Lord Jesus, trusting in him as you seek and follow through that. And so this is the second mark of the church. What Paul's getting at here is an active shared expression. You can go to the next one of the second mark of the church is a shared expression of faith, hope, and love. Not simply to say we're a church of faith, hope, and love because we feel those feelings, but they're expressed by one another within the community. And again, just thinking through most of our experiences of most churches over the past 30 years have largely pulled away from a shared participation and expression of faith, hope, and love to a spectator experience where I come to an event and I get to kind of like mooch off of the faith, hope, and love of others to kind of fill my battery. So I listen to stories of people with deep, enduring faith who have been through all the thick and thin of it, and I cry and I have a little, you know, dopamine hit of emotions. Oh, 
great, and, but I never give my, I never live within that themselves. I, I enjoy having people who do childcare and hospitality and set up, and yet I never, this has been most people's experience. And so why the great dechurching has happened is most of those people who were putting on all of that stuff for those very same people either burned out and left the church themselves or they're still there. And everybody who was just there for the reception of other people expressing their faith, hope, and love, they, they've walked away because they never developed that kind of participation in it for themselves. This, is, this has been, most, most expressions of, of church have largely fallen over to a, a spectator experience meant to foster internal spiritual feelings rather than a shared participation of faith, hope, and love being expressed within a community. And so this is where some of the celebrity dynamics happen within the church, where we find the people that we like, who their faith, their hope, their love, that's the kind of thing that I'm into. And so I'm gonna follow after and just kind of mooch off of them and their experiences, never fostering and stewarding that for myself. But what Paul sees in the Thessalonian church, what Paul would say is going to be a lighthouse within a dechurching moment, is the kind of community that takes personal responsibility for the expression of their faith, of their hope, of their love as a community. Not simply to receive it, but to take personal responsibility. I want to lean into that. I want to serve. I want to contribute. I want to have the sort of resilient faith that when the worst things come up against me, somehow I find Jesus not just with me, but good and working through it in the midst of it. And so this is what the second mark is a shared expression of faith, hope, and love. And so now he moves into verses four and five, where he gives us the next mark of a model church. For we know, brothers and sisters, loved by God, that he has chosen you because our gospel did not come to you in word only, but also in power, in the Holy Spirit, and with full assurance. What does he move on to next? So the shared identity of the church, the shared expression of the church, and here he now talks to the shared receptivity and reception of God and the gospel through the church. He says, you guys have received. I love the, the language that he used there, that you are loved by God and chosen by God, and there is evidence for God's love. There is evidence that God has chosen you, and that evidence is the way that you receive the word, the way that you receive the power of the Holy Spirit, those kind of two go together there, and the way that you've re received this full assurance that comes from the gospel. So just to, to move through each of these, first, he's grateful for, you guys have received the gospel, you've received our word, you've received the preached word, you've received the scriptures, you're studying them for yourselves, you're leaning into them yourselves, you're following them in them. And again, using Paul's words here to be an opportunity for my own gratitude has been watching over the years how many of you stepped into not just being participants to Ryan as the teaching pastor, but, but working through your, for yourselves, your questions with the scriptures, your understanding of the gospel, the questions that you have, not just at, at a philosophical or theological level, but what does it mean to follow Jesus in this way? It has been a gift to watch you receiving the word, as Paul says. And let me just, as gratitude and celebration sending you forward, as, as uh, who, who Scott mentioned a moment ago, is, you know, we're building up for my family to step out with the hope and intention of planting this church in Asheville as Casey Fritz is coming in. Continue in this. Continue in this. I, what I love is that Paul doesn't put the emphasis of his gratitude on the fact that they listen to him, but that they listen to the word, that they listen to the gospel. And so the great gift of that is that regardless of who's in this spot, that there is at some level a stewarding of the word, a stewarding of the gospel. And the model church says, regardless of whoever's in that spot, when we're opening the scriptures as a community through our integrated Bible study, and then in this space, we are receiving that word. That's the mark of the model church. And so may you continue in all the work that God has been doing as we continue as a church. But he says that I love is that they weren't just um, Bible nerds. They didn't just receive it in word only, but in power and in the Holy Spirit, these two going together. What he's talking about here is it's, it's the miracles and the signs and the wonders that, that took place in and around the preaching of the gospel within the Thessalonian church. And what I love about this being here is Paul's whole emphasis is signs and wonders, prophetic tongues, the work of the spirit, making himself known within the community is not a side thing to the proclamation of the gospel. 
It's not a side thing to a person's reception of God. What he's saying is, we know, brothers and sisters, that you're loved by God. We know that God has chosen you. Why? Because the gospel didn't just come through the, through the Bible, but through you guys experiencing the power and the Holy Spirit, the power of the Holy Spirit. And, and Paul, everywhere, when he uses this language of power, it is always a way of him talking about signs and wonders. People being healed, people being delivered, this is what Paul's getting at. Is he says, man, the Martel church is not just a church of Bible nerds, but of people who are passionately pursuing God's inworking and his giftings through the spirit at work within the community. And so once again, grateful gratitude has been where collective we have gone over the past year of becoming a community who, yes, says not in word only, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit, have leaned into receiving God and the gospel through an ongoing work of the Spirit, making ourselves not just open and passively receptive, but pursuant of, eagerly desiring all that God has for our community. May we continue in that, and in so doing, being a model church, an example church, as Paul calls it. And then last, he has... What does it mean to be receptive of God and the gospel is to have a full assurance. Not just Bible nerds and not just charismatics or whatever you want to call that, but also people who have been at the deepest level of their hearts transformed. Where there now exists not just knowledge in their mind, not just power in and at work through the church, but hearts that have been transformed by the presence of God where the grace of God now brings an assurance that I am safe, that I don't need to worry about any oncoming wrath or judgment, and that I have peace, not through my circumstances, but through the fact that I am in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. This is the full assurance that Paul's talking about. And so what he's getting at here then is that the third mark of like a model church is a shared reception of God in the gospel that comes through the scriptures, through the spirit, and then those come together into the sort, a new kind of internal sense of being where your heart is assured, convicted, strong, set on the reality of God and the gospel, not just as theological ideas, but as the experience of your soul. And so once again, to talk about the deterching movement, what got us here over the past 30 years has been, and while there are, like, I'm not, this is not, this is broad brushstrokes, this is not every single church, but a very prevalent move within the past 30 years of setting aside the word and setting aside the gospel and leaning into most sermon series as just being like some form of like self-help, Ted Talky kind of stuff, or you've got churches that I, I, I'm, I'm taking a break from YouTube because I just kept getting down these dark holes that made me doubt everything, including my existence. But one of them was this church in Canada that their Easter gatherings every single year were like these human videos where there was like Star Wars, but like the Easter story. It was like the Avengers, but the Easter story. It was like, like every, think about every single one, Star Trek, but the Easter story. And so I, the funny, it's like we laugh, but like most of us have experienced some form of that kind of thing, where rather than just talking about Jesus from the scriptures and the work that he's done within the world, we've got to dress it up with some kind of like attraction, or we've got to make it overly self-helpy with sermon series that are like, how to do your taxes, like in five steps, like that's the sermon series, like I'm taking notes, but I don't think that's what we're here for. And so the whole point being is that when the church drops out of a honest proclamation of the scriptures and a receptivity of the Holy Spirit, what ends up happening there is we give ourselves over to human wisdom rather than the word of God. And then similar, we think about the dechurching movement that has largely set aside the power of the Holy Spirit. And, and that doesn't even have to be the charismatic stuff. I just mean the ongoing work of the Spirit in the church as the thing that leads and guides people. And we have given ourselves over to human power rather than the power of God, which always ends up bending towards manipulation, which always ends up building towards authoritarianism and abuse. Think about the dechurching movement and how much of it has been a setting aside of the word of God and the power of the spirit for human wisdom and human power. And this has then led to Christians and people within churches who rather than having a full assurance of the work of God, live with a spiritual anxiety from day to day. And so of course they walk away. And so the whole point being here is that if we are seeking to be a model church to receive the gift of the Thessalonian church, it is by returning back to and settling into the gift that is how God meets us in the word, how God meets us through his power and the spirit and allowing our hearts to, from those things, be warmed and kindled into a new place. 
And in so doing, becoming a kind of church that's known for, Paul points out three things. The kind of church that receives God in the gospel. Verse six, at the very end, he says, in spite of severe persecution, you welcome the message with joy from the Holy Spirit. The church that receives God in the gospel is a church that's known by joy. Think about the deep joy that maybe you've always longed for, maybe you've experienced in sometimes in some communities. Paul says, the church that receives God in the gospel, the model church, is a church known for its joy, a joy in the Holy Spirit. I think of people in our church like Keith and Charity, known for their joy in the Holy Spirit. He continues that the church that receives God in the gospel is not just known for their joy from the Holy Spirit. He talks about in verse 9 and 10 how they have moved from serving idols, empty gods, empty cultural gods of of chasing after these things to serve the living and true God. This is Paul's emphasis that the experience of those who have turned from dead idols have found the experience of a God who is alive and at work within their lives. They have moved from falling over at wooden and metal idols, trying to get them to hear them, to an experience of the God who is alive and at work within the world. They have an experience of the living God. And then on top of that, they wait for his son from heaven. This is an outward looking to the future that that looks in the midst of all that we're going through, all of the unprecedented moments that we continue to look through, is able to live from a place not of anxiety, but assurance and hope because Jesus is coming to do something about it. I love that's what he does in the pair at the end. Jesus who rescues us from the coming wrath. God, for all of the brokenness and injustice of this world, Jesus is returning to do something about it. And so what that means is I can be faithful to Jesus and in the midst of all the injustice that I face, I can contribute the best that I can to show what the kingdom of God looks like in those situations. But there is also an assurance that even in my feeble attempts to do something about it, Jesus is still going, God will have the last word. And in the midst of all the brokenness of the world, of my own life and what's going to happen, it will never be forever. Jesus will rescue me from it all. So the church that receives God in the gospel is a church overflowing with the joy of the Holy Spirit, this deep experience of God as the living and true Father, and also the hope of Jesus. Notice again, you've got Trinitarian stuff right here in 50 AD that he's just taken for granted. It's like, they didn't think about that until, you know, 350, and all, all these guys got together to make the Trinity a thing. Paul's just taking it for granted here. The church that receives God in the gospel is the church that has the joy of the Holy Spirit an experience of God as Father and the hope of Jesus that's filling them with an assurance as they look to the future rather than an anxiety. And so we bring all these together then in verses six and eight where Paul gives the final kind of element of a mark of a model church. And I'm just gonna focus on these two words um, in particular. You yourselves became imitators of us and of the Lord, imitators, when in spite of severe persecution, you welcomed the message with joy from the Holy Spirit. And then as a result, you became An example. So just notice, all of this comes together as the final mark of the model church is not just the reception of God in the gospel. It's not just the um, shared expression of faith, hope, and love or their shared identity as a political family. It is this commitment to imitating and then being an example of learning and then leading of then watching for those in and among their community who are a few steps ahead and taking on that way of life for themselves and then becoming that same sort of example for others. This is the, uh, this is the, 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 the dynamic that's at work here. Paul says, you guys saw us. So you, you saw um, Paul, Silas, and Timothy when we were with you over that crazy week. You saw our brotherhood. You saw our shared identity. You saw our shared political, how we carried out the rule and reign of God within your city as a community. You watched, and then they said, okay, so we're gonna do what we saw Paul and company doing. Similarly, says, you saw our work of faith. You saw our labor of love. You saw our endurance in the midst of the persecution that we suffered, in the midst of the riot that broke out because of the claims that we were making. You saw how we were faith, hope, and love expressed in the midst of it. And you said, that's what we're going to do. He says, you saw how we brought the word and we were dedicated to bringing the gospel to you. You saw how the power of the Holy Spirit was at work within us and the assurance that we had. He said, and you guys said, you became imitators of us. 
This is, this is part of the mark of the model church is you have imitating and an example and it lives in this cycle dynamic. The ones who became imitators of Paul and company, Paul goes on to say, you became examples to the whole region. There was this multiplying effect at work. And so again, I, this, this dynamic is at work here and I'm just, I've been thinking about this in particular in the midst of us kind of preparing to, to step out later this summer is looking and thinking about Paul, Silas, and Timothy and thinking about as we continue as a community and what we've been trying to lean into specifically as a pastoral team is this, this same sort of dynamic here. Not perfect, Paul certainly wasn't, but a dynamic of what it means to be a leader within the church, we're gonna talk about this so much more next week, is the sort of people who are living in such a way that they say, man, if you become imitators of us, follow the example that we're leading for you, and in so doing, become an example in that same sort of way. That's the dynamic of what it means of what Paul's getting at, is, is you need to have someone that looks like Jesus with skin on for you, someone in your life, and that's part of what all leadership within the church, but in particular with Casey coming in as our new teaching pastor, is like, who are you looking to? What is the example that you're following after? Do you have someone that imperfectly, but faithfully, hopefully, is showing you what it looks like to follow Jesus? Follow after those kinds of people because the end goal is not simply that you become like Lorenzo or you become like Isaac or you become like Ryan or Casey. This is the key line right here in verse six. You became imitators of us and of the Lord. Paul and company says, you know who we're imitators of? We're imitators of Jesus. That's the only reason why we can in any way say, follow me as I follow Christ. Don't follow me full stop. That'll get you a lot of dumb places. Follow me as you see me following Jesus. Insofar as you see faith, hope, and love being displayed in my life, a commitment to the word, a commitment to the power of the Holy Spirit at work within my life, and a commitment to the deep assurance within my heart, follow that sort of example because together we are following after Jesus. This leaning and learning, and then, and then for you yourselves to begin to step into that kind of like discipleship where you own the reality of being an example to others. You own the reality that the work that God has done in you is not simply for the sake of you, but for the sake of you being an example to others in the community. And then Paul says, in the region. This is the dynamic. A model church does not become insular. They begin to start owning the work that God's done in them for the sake of inviting others into that work. And so this is the fourth piece, in a word, of a uh, mark of a model church, the fourth model you can throw up there is just simply a shared commitment to discipleship. This is discipleship. Discipleship is not a thing that you go to necessarily. It's a work that's being done in you and through you. And that's part of what hopefully the, the cycle that plays out within your discipleship groups is you together imitating and being an example to one another in certain seasons. I know that I need this. And so again, in our de-churching moment, like I talked about earlier, one of the primary things that's been at work with these 40 million people walking out of the church is, as they identified, a crisis of this dynamic in particular, a crisis of discipleship. And the primary, the primary way that we think about what the church is and what it's meant to look like. In many ways, most American churches over the past 30 years were the original like subscription service. So you think about HelloFresh, or streaming like Disney Plus, or like we have the Onyx coffee subscription. Think about it, you know, you, we all have at least one of these like things that we don't know we signed up for. That's part of the whole thing, but they're still there. The subscription model service is really built around the idea that you kind of throw a certain amount of money and you get something, goods and services that are sent to you, but all of that is largely built around your convenience. It's built around your preferences. It's built around what you want and then it'll come to you. So you can do me undies. You can sign up and get, you know, your little pair of underwear sent to you every single month that you can add to your growing collection of eccentric underwear. And the whole thing is built around you getting a preference to choose what you want, and it's all built around your convenience. You don't have to go to a store, you don't have to go shopping. With so much of like, now we're moving from HelloFresh, which is like, we'll do the grocery shopping to you, is now all the pre-made meals, which is like, we'll do all of it for you, just put it in the microwave. And like, we're just moving more and more away from any kind of responsibility or ownership for these things. And there goes the point is this is I, I genuinely the primary way that most of us have seen the church over the past 30 years, it continues today, is the church as like Jesus plus. 
And there's like Jesus, and you can have that. But if you want the real cool stuff, the really cool goods and services, the stuff behind the paywall, is like then you join the church. And that's what Jesus Plus is. But it's still, we think of it in terms of it's built around my preferences, it's built around my desire, it's built on what I want, and so if at any point I don't get what I want from it, then I can drop the subscription, because really it was all around my convenience and my preferences anyway. This is how most of us imagine the church, and I know because I'm a pastor, and I get to talk to all of you and your expectations of the church. The way that what Paul is getting at to be a community that's committed to discipleship is to think of the church less like a subscription model. And I'm grateful to Pastor Josh Porter and also Sylvester Stallone in a weird way for this line, is to think of the church more like a gym. When you sign up for a gym, it is very evident what you're signing up for. And it is not about convenience. From the outset, it's gonna be hard work. You think in particular if you like work with a trainer. From the outset, you know, this is going to be hard. From the outset, you know, this is going to cost you. From the outset, you know, you are going to have to make sacrifices for this to work. You think about every, like, you know, boxing movie. You think about Rocky Balboa. You think about, like, Adonis Creed. You think about these movies. You show up, and it's, this is going to be the hardest thing that you've ever done. And this is not about what you want. This is not about us figuring out how to make this as easy for you. This is about you becoming a different kind of person. And by subjecting yourself to a particular tradition or form of either study or training, you will become that kind of person if you walk with me. This, it's, like, it's discipleship. And then you bring into this, like, you know, the orange theorists or CrossFit. There's an identity that's built up in it as well. You will become a boxer. You will become like a CrossFit dude, bro. Like you will, right? There's an identity that's wrapped up in this. No one has an identity about being a subscriber to Disney+. Plus. Like, no one's like, tell me about yourself. It's like, well, I love The Mandalorian. Maybe The Mandalorian's a little bit different. But like, I like, I, you know, I'm a subscriber to Hulu. It's like, that's not an identity. That's not a personality, bro, like that you have that. But what is, is like your commitment to becoming a particular kind of person. You think about learning the piano and the piano teacher, she sits you down to talk through what we're gonna do for you to learn the piano. This is gonna get boring. It's gonna be repetitive. It's gonna be sacrificial. It's gonna cost you money. And you're gonna commit to me being the teacher. This isn't around like, I wanna do it my way. That's, you're learning how to play the piano and I know how, so I'm gonna teach you. And so we're going, you're gonna go through progressions and chords and you're, you're gonna find it very boring. And yet by the end of it, if you trust me, you will learn how to play the piano. You will become a different kind of person. What we have to do is move more and more in the moment of de-churching, being a lighthouse among this moment, is moving from seeing the church as a subscription service to seeing it like a gym. As the old church fathers, they used to refer to the church as the gymnasium of the soul. And then Stallone said basically the same thing in some quote. He called the church the gym of the soul. Is seeing that this is what we're giving ourselves over to, a shared identity where we're saying this is now who I am and it is not separated from but part of the community that I belong to. A community that's in the love of the Father and in the Son. That what we are going through is learning how to work, labor, and endure. Notice the weight of that language. To, to have stretching and growth and to become a kind of person where love is more easily labored after, where faith is more easily expressed and endurance is more easily entered into in the midst of our child. And how do you get there? Through subjecting yourself to the regiment, not of the pastors necessarily, but to God and the gospel. The more that we open ourselves up to the word, the more that we center ourselves after pursuit of God's spirit and his power, opening our hearts, like this is how you become that kind of person. So the church is not a spectator event to show up to. It is not built around your preferences and what's easiest for you, unfortunately. For some of you, you just want to attend and you like that kind of part. That's totally fine. We're, we're here for you. For those that are wanting to be a lighthouse in the midst of de-churching and to find what the church was always meant to be that we've lost over the past three decades, this is the call. To, to say, man, I want to enter into becoming a different kind of person through the work that God has done in Jesus Christ and to, to have that work occur within me through repetition, 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 through week in and week out of being in community, of studying the scriptures, of being in the presence of God and, and pursuing after this. And so the Thessalonian church was not perfect. As we're going to see later on in the letter, they've got some pretty big sexual ethics issues that they've got to deal with. They've got a bunch of questions about eschatolic theology that's all over the place. And in some ways, they're actually really struggling in the labor of love. And he's going to speak to that in just a little bit. But, but the initial thing is, 
He finds what's going on within them and he goes, man, you guys have the, you guys already in the midst of the imperfection are a model community, an example of what it looks like to be the people of Jesus. And in the same way, collective church, we in some ways are a hot mess. And yet at the same time, when I think about these marks of a model church, I see their presence within us. There are some of you that my, I, the main takeaway today is you feel so discouraged. I just want you to feel so encouraged walking out of today. God is at work within you as a part of this community. And so le- just lean in and like Paul, just savor that. There are some of you that this gratitude is, it feels like it's a fire underneath your seat and you're wanting to enter into more of it. You feel like you've been sitting in as a spectator watching the team play and you want to get involved. Come on in, the water is fine. There's a work that God is doing here and the great gift of it is that it, it, it doesn't tap out with a certain number. But there's a work that God wants to do within our generation and within our moment and it will be found, hear me here, not, not, through individual influencers out there doing the best to talk about how cool Jesus is. It's by churches who are embodying the way of Jesus together in a shared identity, a shared expression, a shared, this, this is how this is gonna happen. Why? Because the main thing that got us into our de-churching moment was a bunch of individualized faith. And the way back will come through as we enter into a shared community that is in God the Father, in our Lord Jesus Christ, brought together and empowered by the Holy Spirit with his joy. This is what we're going after.